Hey everybody, I'm Greg and this is Why Am I, a podcast where I talk to interesting people and try and trace a path to where they find themselves today. My guest this go around is Tom Britton from Freak Show and Tell. I'm not quite sure, but I think he may have sold me a pair of uh, white gloves and a ketchup popsicle to go along with it. Uh, he traveled with a freak show at 16 where he learned to not only talk in turn, but how to eat fire, swallow swords, but also had some grizzled old men teach him how to uh, dress nice, how to tie a tie, how to talk to girls, right? Like be mentors, be older brothers, right? It sounds like this kid um, from nowhere really found a community there. So much so that he went on to create a unique show blending freak show with science and using it as a vehicle to show folks piece of his soul and to share who and why he is. Uh, I hope you enjoy this chat with Tom. Uh, Tom Britton from Freak Show and Tell. Thank you for joining me on the Why Am I podcast. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, man. I was pretty stoked when Aaron uh, sent your information over. Uh, anybody who's going to put kind of freak show in their title is probably <laughs> near and dear, probably uh, one of my kindred uh, spirits, you know, that are floating around out there. Uh, so you and I are, uh, we're swapping stories about uh, a Bourbon Street uh, backdoor happenings, I suppose. And, uh, you know, we just happen to be chucking a jive in some place. And, you know, we talk about me a little bit and we exhaust that portion of the conversation. It's your turn to reciprocate. So, uh, Tom, who are you, man? So my name is Tom Britton. I am at heart a vaudeville nerd. So the show is called Freak Show and Tell. There's a few of them, but that one I think is the best example of, of me on stage. So it's a show and tell about the freak show. I go to the freak show. Just to me, it's like a science center. I see the bed of nails. Now you've seen that at every science center in the United States of America. It shows distribution of weight. You let a child lay down the bed of nails. And they're amazed. And I thought, well, could I apply that to stuff? that is not appropriate for children. Things like <laughs> fire eating, Tesla coil, glass walking, sword swallowing. What I liked about the freak show and our, our mutual friend, Aaron's a magician. I pair very well with magicians. If I can just a moment digress to define magic. So magic is attempting amazement with an element of deception. We allow a magician to lie, but if I were to just do a backflip into a handstand and do 12 push-ups, like I'm in Cirque du Soleil, you'd be amazed, but it is not a magic trick. If right. I juggle on a unicycle, you're amazed, not a magic trick. Magicians amaze, and you it's understood. In fact, you'd feel a little cheated and like I was a little shitty if I turns out I was not able to actually do a backflip <laughs> because you didn't give me permission. I didn't say it was a magician. I yeah. didn't have permission to lie to you. So a magician amazes with deception. I haven't the courage to do that. I prefer to rather learn the piano well enough to just play Rachmaninoff and you go, wow, you're incredible. I can't do that. But there's no like, how'd you do it? What do you mean how to do it? I sat down at a piano for 12,000 hours. So when I saw the freak show, I thought it was an interesting way to provide amazement. And the more I explained it, instead of cheapening it, as I would like if I was at Aaron's show and he started explaining how the tricks work, if you ever learn how magic trick works, it's not that interesting. <laughs> it, it really isn't that cool. You think it's going to be. It's usually very simple. Fire eating, I go to great lengths to explain. As much as I can without getting boring, it is a comedy theater show. But I want you to understand that what you're seeing is not wizardry. Just like the iPhone, I can explain it to you. It is amazing. It's revolutionary. It's incredible, but it ain't mysticism. Mm. It's just 
cool. And so I started taking pieces from the, from the freak show and made it into a freak show and tell. That gave me a very unique spin and a way to write things. I don't do sword swallowing because I do human blockhead. I had to pick one because they're both kind of the same trick as far as explanations and jokes would go. Um, so I picked four classic elements from the circus freak show. I picked fire eating. I picked blockhead. I picked Tesla coil. I picked glass walking. I put them together in an hour and a half one man show that talks about my life. It's, it's my narrative tale. It's my journey through the freak show, starting at 16 years old, running away with the circus lessons I learned in performing for people. And then along the way, you not only learn about me, it's a show and tell of me as well, but you also learn how does he run a hundred thousand volts of electricity through his body and light light bulbs with his bare hands. And more importantly to me, how did Nikola Tesla tour that exact act around the planet earth as an argument for why electricity is safe and you should allow him to put it in your home. It was a marketing ploy done by Nikola Tesla himself. And so what I'm doing is representing a piece of history, a piece of science and a piece of my personal history in the same act. And that's true of every one of the four acts I choose. That I think it's the heart of who I am. I want to find stuff that interests me, amuses, is impressive. I am trying to amaze. But if I'm on stage riding a unicycle and juggling, I have something to say. It's not just look at this. I may do one piece in a show where it's just to show off I can do it. Hey, look, I can play a harmonica while balancing on one foot on a high wire. Mm -hmm. I just learned to do it. I thought you'd maybe like it. You can clap now if you did. Thank you so much. <laughs> but I would maybe do one because see, it feels thin, even the way I said it when I just made that up. I made it up and I kind of shit on it at the same time. It's not even that interesting to me in concept. <laughs> what would be interesting is if my grandfather played harmonica, my father was a wire walker, and I'm an acrobat third generation. Let's do all three at the same time. Let me tell you the story of my grandfather immigrating from Sicily to America. My father, you know what I mean? And then and then that becomes the act. And I'm going to making all this up. But that becomes the crux of what I'm doing. So when I do my backflip off the high wire, hit my high note on the harmonica and stick the landing, you're not just applauding for the trick. You're applauding because you've learned more about my soul. So that's a long way to answer your question about if I see what I do is difficult because I've created my own little genre. It's not stand-up comedy, but it kind of is. It's not magic, but it's amazing, but there's no deception. It is theater in that it's done in a theater, but it ain't any get you gun. It isn't Book of Mormon, although it is performed for the exact same audience. Um, <laughs> I literally, I'm, the, I'm the, 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 the palate cleanser in your season of theater. Uh, it's the same thing you've seen every year for 200 years. It's the 85th annual Godspell, followed by the 12,000th performance of, of Annie. In between, it'll be a weekend of freak show and tell. Hmm. It sounds like a lot of what you do is you're selling what you're doing through a story. You want people to connect with some kind of a narrative, some kind of a story. Do you feel like you do that like in all aspects of your life or is that relegated to just kind of the, because I mean, I, for the listeners here, we did the, the, the warm up exercise, the fantasy restaurant and you, I mean, you wove a story through the entirety <laughs> of that conversation. And you're telling me how you do that over, you know, in this other aspect of your life. I'm just wondering, do you, do you kind of take that concept and like when you're talking to a friend, does it, everything you convey to them, does it have to be kind of woven through a story that like connects to it? I hope not. I hope not. Cause that sounds like boorish, right? D to me, it um, sounds like a superpower brother. It can, it can be on stage. It can be. And when you're writing, it can be. Um, and it does give you a narrative. Like if you come see freak show and tell there are concepts that you think I've dropped in the beginning 
and then they reappear in the middle and then pay off at the end. And you go, mm. oh, my God, he was setting it up the whole, oh, that's <laughs> the thing he meant. Oh, my God, that's the, the glass walking's related to the fire eating in ways I didn't understand. So hopefully if you're paying attention, you come see it more than once. It should pay off. I don't, I don't, even if it's a punchline, I don't mind set off, set up punchline, but I prefer the writing on like 30 Rock or Kimmy Schmidt, uh, the incredible Kimmy Schmidt, where, where Tina Fey and her, I forget her writing partner's name who created that show. They both will, you think the joke is done. And then 10 minutes later, it's done. There's, there's another tag that's the funniest part. And I like that kind of writing. So maybe I certainly try and do it on stage because I'm trying to write for longer form. At mm. no point am I doing three minutes in someone else's show. I have, I'm not opposed to it. This is not the kind of offers I get. I usually have an hour and a half of you and me, 200 of you, one of me, let's begin. So I've got 90 minutes to do that. So it lets me, and it's a scripted show. There's 10,838 words. And knowing that I can, every single piece can be placed correctly. There's not a lot of improv within that there's some lights will blow or someone will cough or something, but I'm not as reactive as a standup would be. I'm not doing crowd work at any point. If someone farts in the middle of my, my show, I just pretend I didn't hear it. <laughs> it's not as funny as whatever I got coming next. I promise you it's, I spent 10,000 hours writing this. I promise you <laughs> the next thing I've got is funnier than the fart joke. I just thought of two seconds ago. This, this is very well choreographed. I've heard you've done like a lot of reps. Like early in your career, you were doing like tons of shows like all day long, right? Yeah. So the sideshow was like boot camp. You started at 16 years old. I, I discovered the freak show. And as a patron, I just liked it the same way, the same way. Um, who was it who wrote the illustrated man? He's from Evanston. Uh, Ray Bradbury, sci-fi mm. writer. He went to the freak show and loved it so much. It inspired him to an entire career of sci-fi. Um, the Illustrated Man is the Tattooed Man. That's where I got the idea from. Um, in fact, I know that because in the beginning of the Illustrated Man, he writes it. If you if you're if you're thinking I'm half remembering this, yes, read the first three pages of the Illustrated Man. He he tells the story better than I can. Um, same thing happened to me. I went there and I thought interesting, but they're leaving a lot on the table. They were doing fire reading as if it were a card trick, and then they would do a card trick, and then they would cut a lady in half, and then they would do the electric chair, which is a Tesla coil. And they would light a light bulb as if it were a magic trick. And I thought to myself, the bed of nails, fire eating and juggling are not cool enough to be ma a magic trick when you summon a fucking dragon. That's a magic trick. <laughs> you cut a woman in half and put her back together. By the way, putting her back together is actually the magic trick. The, the cutting a woman in half part, literally anyone could do. Um, that is high enough. If you just juggled three balls and told me it was fake, I'd be like, why are you faking that? I could learn that. It's like, it's like typing as a magic trick. Learn to type. Right, right. So to me, I thought as an audience member, you're not doing it right. This stuff should be in a separate category from the mind reading demonstration or the illusion or the, you know, card tricks. Not that all aren't wonderful, but I think you're short sheeting the bed on these guys. These could, these could, you could show this and it'd be interesting. Um, from that's the germ of freak show and tell. So I joined the freak show because I did like the interest of essentially it's a street show and you grind. So what people don't realize about the freak show on a Friday or particularly a Saturday, the show starts when the carnival opens, say 11 AM and the show does not stop until the carnival closes at say midnight, usually mm. close to 11 PM. Uh, but some nights they're really making money. Uh, I'll tell you a trick if you ever go to the circus, the, the carnival, really, not talking about the circus, the carnival, the big wheel, the big Ferris wheel 
all the ride operators, all the guys taking your money at the ripoff games, we're all watching it because when it goes off, that's closing time. Hmm. The people who own the rides rent the space. So if you're the guy ripping off the customers with the little rings over the bottle game, your boss is paying the guy that owns the rides, the Dominsky brothers or the Safran family or whatever they're called, the name on the marquee. They're the boss. They say when you close and they control the switch on the Ferris wheel. That's their signal that you go up oh, by and close it. And you will see them do that. We're tired. We're done with you. We're a little annoyed at the marks. We close down. So that means at 11 a.m., I could think of a joke. If I were a stand-up comedian and I thought of a joke on a Monday, I maybe get three minutes a night in New York City, three minutes a night. There ain't no open mic on a Monday in Poughkeepsie. I could do three minutes a night. And within two or three weeks, I'd know is the joke good? Is the joke bad? Maybe it's a bad joke, but maybe it's also that I'm doing it wrong. Hmm. I got to say my sister has herpes, not my sister has herpes. And if I say my sister has herpes, it gets a laugh. But I got to find that. I got to find how to get that, right? I could at 11 a.m. write a joke, and by 3 p.m., I've done it 15 times. <laughs> and I've either figured it out and it listened to me the rest of my life, or I've gone, bad joke. You're not going to make it work. Give it up. Rewrite it. it it's, my sister, I said, no version of that is funny. It's not funny to give your sister herpes. Write another joke. I should ask what our rating is on this show, by the way. Should I be more Disney? It's, it's whatever you want. Okay. It's whatever you want it to be. It All also right, makes you wonder. It's like, that's got to make you, uh, I don't know, like get over your stage fright really quickly. Make you a lot braver really fast. Just learn that you're going to see this face one time and probably never see it again. So it doesn't really matter, right? More experimentational, bolder, and you get more material. You come out of boot camp with muscles bolder. you didn't know you had. I come out of the freak show with a lot of material because I've been able to write 10,000 jokes and then 15 of them work. That's the art of writing comedy, is you write 5,000 jokes and seven of them are winners. And 15 <laughs> are maybes and the rest are garbage. But it's a it's a numbers game. You just write a joke, write eight jokes a day, do that every single day. At the end of the week, you got one good joke. And it may not be finished, you gotta find it. Maybe my sister, as you gotta find the lilt or find the pace or find the moment or find the, you know, if you're doing a joke about Hitler or something, you gotta be Anthony Jeselnik. And you got to find a way to be a dark comedian. If you're doing mm. a joke about how fat the guy's in the front row, you better be Don Rickles and have a whole Mr. Warmth thing going on before you talk about the fat guy in the front row. And you better insult yourself first. That's Don Rickles. He knows how to do it. First, he makes fun of himself and Jewish people because he's Jewish. Then he makes fun of the black guy. It, it, but he learned that, I'm sure, the hard way. A couple of punches to the face from the black guy in the front row. Yeah. And he learned to maybe pace himself. Um, and then more experimentational because I know at 11 a.m. I can write a joke and I can stop doing it wherever I want. So if it's one that I might have been hesitant about, not because it's, I don't really do stuff that's like a Hitler joke or whatever. I'm not out there with Anthony Jesselnik doing stuff about abortion or whatever, but I might do stuff that's a little esoteric, a little weird, a little cerebral. I don't know if it's going to land with the common audience. In the freak show, I would have tried it. I can always stop and I can always put it in the middle where it's joke that works, joke that works, my thing maybe. Hmm. I could cash it and you, I wouldn't lose the audience. Big laugh, joke, big laugh. And you forget this part. I remember it. It's this thing I'm working on. Hmm. And then big joke, a little better, hopeful, big joke. And then next, all three are big jokes. Okay, move this to the end. There's my spot. So yeah, miss? I highly recommend Grinds, but that's Six Flags, that's Disneyland, that's the freak show. Do you miss that freedom? 
like uh, to be able to just experiment? Because I, I would assume like with your show now, like the way you've got it rehearsed and honed, you probably don't want to like try just crazy material out every now and then, right? No, no. With Freak Show and Tell, I don't mess with... Once I'm charging you money, I don't want to improvise. You didn't improvise the amount you paid me. You paid me. <laughs> so you had a $40 ticket, not a heavy ticket, 40 bucks. But you bought two of them. There's parking. There's dinner. There's a babysitter. You're out 200 bucks to come see my show. I just didn't get all of it, but you're out 200 bucks. I don't want to make you roll the dice on 200 bucks. I want to give you, even if it's not for you, it's a tested product others have liked. And so, and I'm happy with it as an artist. So here's what I would like to serve. Do you enjoy it? I'll take my reviews. Um, but there are other outlets. So one is you get older, you start to see the matrix code in comedy. And so you get a bit better at predicting. So now of my 10,000 jokes, I know don't take all 10,000 to the stage, which I wouldn't have known at 17. Hmm. You get some radar where you're like, okay, these thousand, they're only funny to you, pal. These thousand, little risque. I'm not doing jokes about race. I'm a white guy in 2022. That's a very specific niche you got to really lean into. Throw those out. That sister has herpes thing is no funny. And then you get down to like 10 or 11. And there are still outlets for me to kind of go and try new stuff. Um, and I could, if I wanted to, slip in one or two. But it's not as heavy as it was back in the day when it was a grind. You paid a buck to get into the carnival. You paid a dollar. Uh, so the fire eating was a dollar's worth. If I got one joke that landed, that's another bonus for you, the audience. And I was usually more hit than miss. I was very conservative about when I sprinkled in new stuff. So I mm. tried to really make sure you even got your dollar's worth. Um, and if you're personable, they'll let you not. They won't remember. You've been to a comedy show where the comedian did a joke and they noticed it didn't get a laugh and you do not remember the joke. I guarantee you've been seeing Jerry Seinfeld live and he tried a joke and he got a titter, not a laugh. He noticed you didn't because the next joke was, who are these people? And you went nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it, you can sneak it in there if you wanted to. So you're 16, 17. Was that in Chicago? Because you're in Chicago now. No. This, so I'm in Chicago for the last 16 years. Uh, no, this was this was in the Deep South. And then we traveled from the Deep South to the Meadowlands in New York. And then we crawled on the coast with the uh, the World of Wonders. Uh, so you were literally Chris traveling Wonders. with this with this freak show. With a freak show, yep, with a bearded lady, tattooed man, fat man, dwarf who ate fire named Pete Tehern, worked under the name Little Poobah. Little Poobah. Uh, in fact, I've got, I've got some of their books behind me. I go over here, I've got Bobby Reynolds' book. I've got, yeah, this is Jim Rose right here from uh, Shocked and Amazed. Um, so, yeah, touring with a freak show and grinding all day. You would do, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You start at like 4 in the afternoon, go to 10, 11 p.m., Saturday, Sunday, 11 to 11, 11 to 9, 10. So was it summer? Did weeks, you drop out of school? Down, like, what's the story? No, it was summer. This is this was the summer okay. summer circuit. And then when I was in my 20s, I went again and did it just kind of as a semi-full-time gig. More for fun than profit. It didn't pay very well. But it was a nice learning curve. And you do learn a lot of different skills. It was a chance for me to see sort of the buffets laid before me. I've seen someone do contortion. And I can say, well, I do a lot of learn that. I've seen someone do a magic act, a ventriloquism act, the juggling act, a mime act. You know, um, all this stuff is still a shadow puppet act. Like all this stuff is still alive and well in the freak show. And it let me know what I wanted to invest in. Uh, you know, do I really want to spend 50, 60 hours learning a, a decent hand puppet act? And do I have anything to say with that? Like, you know, if hmm. I learn this thing, what, is that an art I want to invest in? Um and I picked up things like I wanted to learn how to swallow swords. I worked with a sword swallower. 
I said, hey, when you get a second, when you show me some some tips, people often ask if I've been hurt doing this stuff. Never. I get hurt just like you do. I get hurt in the kitchen cooking dinner. And the most serious accident I've ever had is just like a bass player. I was loading these big ATA cases of my show off. I dropped one on my foot. Mm. I thought I broke my toe. It turned out I was fine, but I had a show to do that night, 90 minutes on my feet. Um, so I banged my thumb loading the show in and out. But on stage, eating fire, juggling swords, riding a unicycle on a high wire, and eating fire on a unicycle on a high wire. <laughs> this stuff is 10,000 years old, 50,000 years old, a million years old. And the people who taught me were a million years old. They were in their 50s, 60s, <laughs> 70s. So I was a 16-year-old kid, probably more adventurous than most, probably more like I would be in jackass if I were born later in life, right? But I had the same way you would a karate instructor before they let you break a board. You are overqualified to break a board because you hmm. break your hand if you're not. I had a man, I'll be 50 this year. I had a man closer to my age going, whoa, son, hey, uh-uh, slow down. You're going to hurt yourself. Stop it. Come here. Let me show you how to do it. So what me and a bunch of my friends in a parking lot with a YouTube video, figuring it out and challenging each other. There was a, I was the only person there under 30. Oh, wow. It was all adults in the room. They were over all the bullshit and they could like, hey, hey, no, 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 no. I'm not going to teach you if you're not going to listen. Now watch me again and do it exactly the way I do it. And you had to make promises. When I learned to swallow swords, I made a solemn promise. Uh, the guy who did it, a big act back in the day, was you would do a couple of swords and you swallow a light bulb and you'd undo your shirt and you could see the glow as it went all the way down to your stomach. Stomach acid eats at the glass. It explodes. It's a fluorescent bulb. It shatters. And now you got surgery because you got broken glass all the way down. Ward Hall had seen this happen once and heard about it happen then three or four times. He made me take a solemn, he's like, like look me in the eye. I'm not going to teach you if you ever do that trick. And before he passed away, I introduced him to the idea of Pyrex, a new kind of glass that is not affected by acid. Could have put a bulb in that. And I had to go back and forth with him on several emails and phone calls before I could convince him to give me permission to essentially break that or modify that promise. I will never hmm. do it with a traditional fluorescent bulb. I understand your logic there. This is a new kind of glass that stomach acid will not affect. Because the thing was, it doesn't affect the glass until it does. You do 200 swallows but it's constricting the whole time. The slightest little fraction. If you ever dropped a fluorescent bulb, you know it explodes like, boom, yeah. inside you from Oof. stomach to mouth. And do you have health insurance? Because you're a fucking carny. No, you don't. Welcome to America. <laughs> where we will watch you bleed out in the street. We don't care about you. It's America, baby. So do you have a rich daddy? Is he a surgeon? No. Well, then you can't do this trick. So yeah, it's funny. It's, hurt. That story reminds me of the first time I, uh, yeah, the first time I went to a freak show, it was kind of at our, our local fair in uh, in Waco, Texas. And I was there. And the only thing I remember, well, one, I remember the barker at the door. Like, he was the only one barking, like, anywhere inside the fair. And uh, I had never seen that before. And so it was just, I don't know, it worked, right? It, like, got me in there. But then also, you know, all the, the painting on the outside of it, the freaks, the allure of it, you know, as a kid. Yeah. It, it drew me in. But I remember in there the atmosphere they kind of had it like sort of dimly lit and it was just it was sort of eerie in there but the only real act i remember was a sword swallower and i really remember it because at the very end he swallowed a fluorescent light and i remember seeing that glow all the way to and it just yeah like it's an impressive it's, trick yeah it's pretty wild it's pretty wild to see it's fun we call that flash all the stuff behind me is flash. It's what attracts you to the booth. You see it in, in sales and, and it, you know, they call it end caps in grocery stores. 
flash. You got to work on your flash. And then a, a, a barker is called a talker in the circus. When they're outside, I was a talker and I was a professor. So talker's the guy outside. Ladies and gentlemen, behind me, you see the amazing Howard Hughes. It takes a train car to lug him and 10 girls to hug him. The fattest man on earth, <laughs> over 750 U.S. pounds. Don't believe me? For 50 cents, you can see for yourself. Prove me wrong and I'll give you a dollar. Right this way, right this way, sir. I'm talking to no one, by the way. I'm looking into space. Right this way, absolutely. Push to the front if you got a 20. <laughs> show starts right now and never stops. Come on in and meet Howard Huge. That's the talker. And it's then the crowd you gather is called a tip. And then the amount of people you can get in. So 80 gather. I turned the tip 50%. How much of the tip can you turn? Anyone can gather a crowd. Just take your dick out. Can you get <laughs> money from them is the art of the talker, right? Mm. How much that tip did you turn? So that's my job. Then when I go inside, I don't, have a, I don't have a fear of public speaking. Never really did. Some people are just like that, but most people are not. Most people have a deathly fear of public speaking. So I'd work with a contortionist. Statistically speaking, she's no more likely to want to speak in public than anybody else. So they might tell me, hey, I don't want to talk my own show. Nowadays, you got back in my day CDs. Now you got Spotify. 1930s, you got a band. It's expensive. So you probably talk your own show or you have a professor. My job as the professor is to talk your show. Don't even need to see it. It's improv. You're going to do contortion. Behold, it's Lydia. Not born like you. Are. You just start. You just go. Not born like you and I, the bendiest lady. Look at that leg behind her head, ladies and gentlemen. Let her hear you if you love it. That's Lydia. And after about the third, again, we're going to grind this. First time I'm seeing it, there's certain moves you're going to do. I see you going to a move where you're going to do a push-up. I go, but can a woman this thin, this gorgeous, this flexible lift her own weight? Behold, Lydia, <laughs> the lightest, most flexible, most beautiful woman you'll ever behold. By the third act, third time I've seen your pieces, I know what's coming next. And so I can cue you up for a big <gasps> moment. What it's, you know, if you're going to throw your leg behind your head and then turn your whole body 180 degrees, I can go and now the pain and get the audience to jump as you turn. By the fifth day, I'm professoring your show in my sleep. Hmm. Professoring is talking during your performance. Uh, I professor my own act. Actually, it's called I talk my own act, but you would say, you know, I talk my own act. So the magician may come up. Never met him before. Don't need to. I just talked Lydia's act. Who are you? Well, I'm Greg. I talk my own. Oh, go ahead, Greg. And you walk up. Hey, who wants to see a card trick? My name's the amazing Greg. If you would, just don't even pick one. Just think of a card. Think of any card. And you do your act, and then I'm on the next. And so you're kind of emceeing, kind of professoring. Pop outside, do some talking. Come back in. That's I got a bullwhip behind me here. Two bullwhips, one red, one purple, and white. Because you want to mix it up. Uh, <laughs> I go outside and do double bullwhips. I can play paradiddles to music. So a lot of the rides have music, and I'll play along to the songs. And then end with a pretty girl with a rose in her teeth. Take it out. There's my tip. How do you turn them? Anyone can attract a crowd. In fact, a crowd attracts a crowd. Hmm. But now how do you turn them into paying customers? That's the art of the talker. So yeah, I did all that stuff. That was my job. And if you can, so say the fat man, for example. Although I love pitching the snake show. That's what I was best at. But let's say they make about 100 bucks, 50 cents at a time. Average. With a decent talker, three to 400 bucks. Hmm. So when the boss puts me in the booth, he makes three to 400% more revenue. Hmm. This makes me more valuable than the average schmuck or a tape just running on a tape loop makes about a quarter of that. So if you're good at your job, they're motivated to keep you. Now they can't pay you very much, 
But when you're 17 years old and you say, I really want to learn to eat fire. They go, someone teach the kid to eat fire. You, teach this kid to eat fire. I need him to stay here. I can't pay him more. Teach him to eat fire. He gets bored, he leaves. Um, so that that was kind of the reward as you become a valued employee. And you pick that up 16, 17. The bill just, or, so you said Slowly. you somewhat, you, you weren't necessarily afraid of speaking to crowds, but the gift of gab, I think, is a muscle that you have to develop. And so that's, you pick that up and ingratiate Well, you start yourself. by, by ecate or epite. You start by monkey see, monkey do. Huh? I say exactly what you say, which is why I go into the old school cadence that no I one actually talks say. like this. Yeah. No one talks like that. They did in the 40s. The guy I learned from was doing it in the 40s. So when he would step up on stage, I talk too quickly, especially for the South. I speak way too quickly. They can't understand me down there because I'm talking too fast. That's how my sister speaks. I've always talked too quickly. But I am Southern. So I turn it on a little bit. I get a little more Creole or Cajun, depending on where I go. I get more Canadian. If I go across the border, I say adult in a boot. You, You blend your chameleon. And then you reduce your cadence so everyone gets a chance because every word is precious, not a single one wasted. So you have this very weird, and I don't talk that on stage. It's only when I'm barking. Even when I go in to talk your show, I don't. I'm much more talking to you, much more like a comedian doing root crowd work or improv. But when I go out to talk the show, it's you're selling and you want to kind of lyrically, I'm a siren pulling you into your doom, but pulling you in to see the show. And that lyricism mixed with occasional asides, uh, occasionally piercing the veil, occasionally mocking myself or the show, um, you know, you 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 lure them in that way. You mix reality with non, with hyper reality, and so they feel that they're seeing a performance. And occasionally, I wink at them, so they know that well. You and I know what I'm doing, but this is just for the this is for the muggles. <laughs> and now you give me a dollar, and in you go. That's turning the tip. It sounds. I mean, it's. I liken it. Because, yeah, as soon as you slip into that voice, it's familiar. And I think everybody knows exactly what you're doing and the kind of uh, where's your pedaling. But it makes me think of like an auctioneer. It's like they don't have to speak like that. They don't have to sound like that. But it's like something about hearing that you understand immediately where this person is and what they're doing and like what they're about. And so it's tradition, maybe. Yeah. Is it you expect a certain thing? You want that carousel has another has a sound to it. The circus has a sound to it. Movies have a sound to them. There's traditions. And I think if I'm that guy and I was always in a suit, you'll never catch me in a T-shirt unless it's under my adult clothing. I've always been that guy. So I've always had an older school look to me. So I'm up there in essentially a salesman's suit and tie. Not quite like a straw hat and a little cane or whatever, but yeah. as close to it as you can get without looking like a caricature. And I'm doing the pitch and I'm telling you to come on it. And yeah, there is almost like a, um, as if I'm Jimmy Stewart in a movie about the carnival. <laughs> and then I wink at you and say something very modern. And that lets you know that I think you're smart enough to be in on it. Yeah. yeah. You special. bring them in on the joke. You're yeah. not like the rest. You're special. <laughs> you're so special. I'm going to let you give me a dollar. That's how much I like you. I'm going to let you put a dollar in my pocket and come on in. And that's salesmanship. I'm I'm sure if I sold Chevys, it'd be the same thing. Uh, Waiters call it the whisper. whisper. People love a whisper. The whisper is this. I wouldn't get the salmon. (laughs) Now you love me. I'm your best fucking friend. Or with a prime rib. So good. What are you having? Well, now you have the prime rib. It's the guy just whispered. It's excellent. <laughs> Powerful sales technique. I let you behind the curtain a little bit. Now, the fact that that's what I do with everybody shouldn't deter you from giving me your dollar. 
but that's that's the art of the carny. That's the art of the talker. And I would maybe if you talked, I've never really done sales um, beyond that. But if you brought someone in here who sold real estate or cars or you know, some people just they're just they'll sell a pen. You know, uh, some of those pitchmen we had that I meet on occasion. I bet they'd say the same thing. You got to give them a wink, make them feel special. Then they'll give you their money easier. That's interesting. I'm in sales, but uh, I uh, I do technical software sales. So it's sort of a, a different pitch, a different cadence. And yeah. uh, I like you were talking about the, um, you know, the uh, chameleon thing. I do the same thing. I, uh, I mirror. I mirror gestures. I mirror uh, accents to a certain degree. So I'm from the South. I grew up in Texas. And uh, when I'm a little bit more around people from Houston, I get a little bit more country. Like I, I slow it down, I draw it out, and I tend to use uh, terms of phrase that I, you know, I, I use occasionally, like reckon or various things like that. And, you know, they come out, and then I'm talking to somebody from California, my cadence picks up. I speak a little bit faster, a little bit more articulate and cleaner. It's just, yeah, yeah it's funny. I never really thought of it in that respect. Like, uh, well, and I like, work uh, in IT, so I've been on the other side, and I've gotten the version you have is this. I'm not going to bore you with all this. This You guys understand IT, but here's, so you just let me behind the curtain. You just told me you're skipping the part for the dumb people. They're, they're too dumb to give me their money. You, you're smart. Let me, I get that all the time. Well, I'm not getting, you guys know what a TCPI port is. Let me, let me skip this. Okay. Here's what we can do for you. It's yeah. almost accidentally baked into how we sell people. You want you know, first, you're in the same club, then you can give me money. And there's also, um, you know, as I've done a little bit of research here and there, and there's an interesting side effect about technical sales. If somebody says, all right, Tom is the smartest guy on this product, like he's our expert, then people will intrinsically believe that. Even if I'm on your team and I'm like the account rep and it benefits me for them to think you're the smart guy, even just me saying that, them knowing that, in their estimation, you still elevated and they're still gonna treat you differently. And, you know, heed what you say closer. So it's just, it's, it's interesting how much um, psychology comes into all of those processes. And I never really it's thought about. It's, it's almost entirely, and we see that now with algorithms. We see more as oh, computers yeah, manipulate those, they become more codified. But if you went back to the 1930s and a guy showed up to sell your wife a vacuum while you were at work and she was home with 2.5 kids and he poured dirt on the rug and started vacuuming it, I bet you'd see the same moment where he gives her the peek behind the curtain the part that is ain't for you. This is what I normally say. I have to say this. <laughs> so they're in the same club and that club is called club. You can give me money now. Do you, um, like when you see that out of the real world, do you reward those behaviors? Cause it's yeah, for I me, it's it, for me, it's pretty rare that I see somebody really hamming it up and going over the top and I can appreciate it because I see the effort they're putting into it. And I enjoy that. I so, think it's almost natural. I think if you are a salesman for, for a while, you'll stumble upon it and, and not realize you, I don't think they're doing it on purpose. I really do think that part of the deck is for the management who doesn't know what a TCPIP, what double net is, what switches do. And so they're used to having to pitch to my boss. And so they go, well, I'm just going to be mansplaining to you. You're in IT. I'm going to skip to this part and explain to you how our product can cut down on the emails your team is getting or whatever the, the sales pitch is. I think they have to do that and they've accidentally, I don't even think they know they're doing it. I think there's a dopamine hit when they close the sale and somewhere in the back of their mind, the skipping, the whispering from the waiter, they don't know they're doing it. 
in fact, until I pointed it out to you, you probably didn't realize how effective it was. And you just thought to yourself, oh, that would totally work on me. Yeah, me too. It's, we're humans. <laughs> it's, it's the same shit no. works on us. I do that in my pitch. Like uh, oftentimes, so I'm on the super technical side. So I, I really do have my my hands in deep. And uh, I've been, a, I mean, I've been in IT for 20 years. 17 of those were like network engineering. And so whenever I'm talking to people, I'm generally talking to the guys in the trenches. They're more technical. So I will pop up the deck and I'll say, you know what? I'm going to skip all the marketing crap for you guys. There's no sense right. of wasting your time. And so blah, blah, blah. You don't need to know that. Marketing, marketing. And then I get into the details. So I'm kind of... Um, I make, but you're this. not lying and you're not manipulating. Absolutely on purpose. not. You're sincerely. Yeah. See what I mean? So I, I, it is a waste of time I don't feel like, I yeah. don't feel that you're being shitty with it. It's just how humans are. It's how we sell each other. And you may honestly, genuinely believe, I mean, look, when I was in the sideshow, I really think if you give me a buck, we can show you a good time for 25, 30 minutes. I think we've got stuff in here. I think I'm funny enough to be worth a dollar. And there's other stuff. The magician's great. The contortionist is hot and she's funny. And the <laughs> ventriloquist, you never, you think you don't like ventriloquists or mimes till you see a good one. And then they win America's Got Talent. Hmm. I got a good one. I got a juggler that'll make you cross-eyed. He's so talented. And he doesn't do jokes. He just juggles nine balls behind his back. It's incredible. Give me a dollar. And I <laughs> promise you, I will give you a memory you will talk about until you die. Hmm. And I guarantee you there are people who tell a story that involves me fire eating for them when they were nine and they half remember it and they got it all wrong. I think I was blowing giant fireballs 50 <laughs> feet high and I was 12 feet tall and made out of wood, but I became part of their life, part of their, you know, part of their story for a buck. So hmm. oftentimes it's that I really believe this is a product for you. I really want you to have it. How do I trick you into giving me your money so you can have the best thing you ever had? How do I trick you into having the best time you've ever had in your life? Hmm. If that's what I have to do, if I have to trick you into buying this amazing car, fine. <laughs> you know? um, so yeah, the sales are a whole other, good Lord, that's, there's, a, there's a deep water. Yeah, it's fun I uh, because I don't really sell. I just talk to people and figure out where their problems are. And if I can help them, I'll show them how. If I can't, I'll say, you know what, maybe you could look at this or that. So I try not to bullshit people. And again, I try not to waste their time because I don't, you know, I don't appreciate when people do that to me. So, you know, just treat people like humans, man. Well, and honestly, look, did you drive all the way out here, park at a gravel road, take the night off work, bring your six kids to walk past the most unique human beings you're ever going <laughs> to see. Because my friend, we don't live here. Come next week, we're gone, never to be seen again. And I know you don't know an amazing juggler when you see one, but my friend, my buddy, my pal, my guy, trust me when I say I do. What I've got in here is going to blow your mind. Give me a dollar. You don't like it, I'll give it back. The exact same, I'll hold it. You write down the serial numbers. I'll hold your dollar and give it back to you with my apologies if you disagree. God, I, I think I could literally listen to you talk all night. This is killing <laughs> me. This is the best. I think I just want you to like narrate random parts of my life, if you could. That was professoring. That's what I did. You <laughs> juggle? I tell people, he's juggling now. Mm. <laughs> but I mean, obviously, you're keeping you're keeping that alive, right? You're, you're trying to. bringing it forward for other generations. Because it, I, I've seen... So that was when I was, man, I was really young. I, I, I was probably like eight or nine when I saw that show. And then I've seen another show probably about nine years ago at, um, I think the State Fair in Tennessee. I think I saw it there, a freak show there that was pretty cool. But other than that, like 
I just don't see them anymore. Like I, I mean, I'm obviously not going into target rich environments all the time, you know, where you potentially see them, I guess, but I don't know. It feels like it's kind of a, a dying thing. So it changed in the nineties. So a guy named Jim Rose married a girl whose dad owned circuses named Bebe. And he created a show that could play bars like a band on like a Wednesday or Thursday. And the Jim Rose Circus got so big, he was on an episode of X-Files. He headlined Lollapalooza and OzFest, all this stuff. He did very, very, very well. He was a name on everyone's lips in the 90s. But the style he did was heavy professoring, a lot of one-liners. And it was very leaning into, at the time, the grunge scene, the alternative scene, and a little bit of horror shock, Mm. which is a big departure from the way it was when it was squeaky clean and fun and more fun kind of cheesy for the whole family watch the fire eater the magician that kind of stuff entertaining for all but offensive to none we don't work blue uh is the term uh, we work and not just clean my agent has this term is it clean or is it disney clean <laughs> disney clean is when you perform at a mormon college i got a really funny dick joke in which i never say the word dick but it ain't disney clean it is <laughs> clearly a penis joke you don't do it right so clean i could do it because your kid doesn't get it. It's too subtle. It's in Latin. But at the Mormon college, no. At the Catholic school, probably not. So clean, Disney clean. Sideshow was right in between the two. And it was quasi-educational is how you got it passed off as not being exploitative. Because a lot of times it was absolutely exploitation. P.T. Barnum took an enslaved woman, bought her, and showed her off as Washington's maid. Mm-hmm. absolutely shitty things happen to performers. Uh, there were a lot of folks who were born different, but also mentally, uh, the word we'd use back then was retarded. They haven't made up a new word. They just said, stop saying the old one. So mentally disadvantaged, doesn't really encompass it, but okay. Uh, exploited, absolutely. Um, but the ones that were well-run were often run by the acts themselves. So you had a person mm-hmm. who was a dwarf or a little person and they owned the carnival. Now they probably started off exploited and then became the boss. And so in their carnival, everyone got paid a decent, no one made a lot of money, but everyone made the same crappy money. No one was getting rich off of you. This is just a, not a high paying job. Hmm. But the bearded lady was treated with respect, the fat man, the, the tattooed man, et cetera. I, I think Jim Rose put a little divide there that is just now starting to fade. And so other folks saw it in a bar, saw it at a, at a music show and thought it pairs well, pairs well with metal music, pairs well with grunge music. And that's where I've seen it staying and melding with burlesque and being more dirty, more tawdry, more metal, more horror show, hmm. less. And, and I'm a theater kid, so I more prefer Shakespeare. I more prefer Oscar Wilde. So when I started writing it, I was sitting in the venue, same way Green Day. Green Day, Billy Joe talks about this. He went to a punk rock club and just wanted to get good enough to perform on that stage. That was the goal. Just learn my guitar well enough to be on this stage. That was my goal. I sat there in between performances and thought, can I do fire eating for this crowd in this <laughs> exact venue? So I wrote, if I guess if I'd been a metalhead at a bar, I'd have written for that. Maybe that's what Jim Rose did, was he was a bar patron who thought, why am I not on the stage? Why is it open mic for musicians? I, I'm a fire eater. I can do stuff. I'm funny. Um, so I think that I had a different path in that I was never really, I don't, hate Jim Rose, but he was never aiming towards my particular weirdness. Uh, the music was for me. The grunge and metal music I like. I'm a metal head. Uh, but the the sideshow stuff, it never really appealed. I love all those acts, but they're not 
my kind of thing in the same way. I'm not a huge fan of like David Copperfield, but I loved Aaron's show. So it isn't that I don't like magic. It's just I don't like, I like, that I probably would love Penn and Teller if I ever saw them. Yeah. I like their attitude. Uh, not really much a one for maybe like a Siegfried and Roy. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, Maybe, maybe not. Very similar taste in that respect. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I was, I was aiming for a different demo and I think that's what happened to it. And so it's just sort of faded but if you go to bars, you can find a three-person troupe. One of them's a burlesque performer. The other two are doing freak show stuff. And they're doing the bog standard stuff that's been done from the beginning of time. Fire eating, stapling dollar bills to their face, human blockheads, some kind of glass walking routine. Maybe sword swallowing, although that's less, that's actually dangerous, so less done. And probably not a test of the coil, because you gotta build one of those and they're expensive. Uh five, six hundred bucks to make one. So probably lighting a light bulb with a magic trick. And then a few sleight of hand pieces, maybe the needle through the arm or something like that. Some gore magic, but the piercing the tongue with a with a nail sort of stuff. And then revealing that it's a fake tongue is the, the gag. Um, that's what I mostly see now. So it's just sort of on a downward trend because no one like Jim Rose is doing it currently. Like he's mm. retired and moved to France. Mm. And your, I mean, your style... It feels, it feels just like uh, something of a fresh take on that, right? So, like you were talking about Aaron's show, uh, I've seen. I mean, I, I love sleight of hand. I, I do a little bit myself. I not very good, um, but you're right. What you see behind the curtain, it's like eh, loses a little bit of its luster. But also, it's very soothing to my brain to do that. I don't know. It like yeah. hits some part of me. But um, Aaron's show is, to me, it was like a performance that sneaks in magic you know so it was just it was like yeah. such an amazing performance and i get the vibe that that's kind of what you're going for as well just i mean you talking at me uh and giving a little bit of the the bark it's just like i love it and so i can only imagine what it's like to see you perform and then also have these other pieces mixed in there so give me give me i mean give me a little taste of of why you enjoy it so much because i could tell you're super passionate about it i i think that what well, so so the show itself is also a one-man show so the rule of the one-man show or one-person show is that you tell me your story but at some point you just see a part of your soul if you write anything there's a character arc so your character has to change at certain points you have to even if you're you're faking it right so you you express, uh, let's say it's a one-man show about your brother coming out to you gay. So you have to start at a point of where you're a little homophobic, and by the end of it, you've accepted. So maybe it's a very simple character arc for you, and then your brother who's afraid becomes less afraid as you change together, and we, the audience, are transformed by your story so where we leave a little bit different than we came in. So for, for me, part of the reason I'm so passionate about doing that show is not just it's fire-eating, who cares? What you don't understand is that the people who taught me fire eating were similar to a football coach who changed your fucking life. Hmm. The same way someone might talk about a junior high school or high school coach or a music teacher or a sensei at a dojo. Like these were, it was almost entirely men. The side show was just a very boys heavy club, same way a kitchen is, right? In like a professional chef's kitchen. Uh, for better or worse, it's the way it is. So these men didn't just teach me fire eating. They taught me like, how do you ask a girl out? How do you, you know what I mean? Like what these were like just male role models hanging around. So it wasn't just like how to eat fire, uh, shiny shoes gig. I, to this day, use the phrase shiny shoes gig. 
I should, remember these guys are very old. They're very old. So they're 60 in the 1990s or from a different world. I showed up in sneakers. That's what he called them. He called them sneakers. Remember this word in my life, sneakers. <laughs> I showed up in my sneakers. He went, no, 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 no. They're paying us, kid. It's a shiny shoes game. The next time you're here, I want to see shiny shoes. You dress like you're going to church or court. So I know you've been to one of those two. <laughs> you, dress, you put on a tie. You put on a shirt. You need help. I'll help you. I learned how to tie a tie from a magician. So these men helped to define me the same way. If I'd gone to camp every year, there may be some coach or some teacher that I know the name of. And they are the reason I became a writer is because Mrs. Smith in sixth grade encouraged me. And now I'm Stephen King, you know, um, that's woven into the narrative. So what I'm sharing with you is how I became who I am, not just as a performer. My wife and I have been married for over 20 years. We met in 1996. We've been married since 2001. So how I asked her out, I learned from a guy in the carnival <laughs> about how to woo a woman. You know, how do you approach a girl? I'm 17 years old. I'm like, I kind of got some girls at school I'm interested in. He goes, okay, let me tell you how you do it. And he gave me tips. Now they were dated and they were like any other uncle just drunkenly telling you how to get a woman. But the, this kind of stuff helps and sticks. And so you weave that into the narrative. So it's easy to become passionate about it because one, you're talking about yourself and humans are egocentric animals, um, performers more than most. Um, but also I think by showing you a part of my soul, I can show you a part of their soul and they're not here anymore. So I can kind of carry on a legacy of like, you don't know this guy's name, but I promise you, if you'd been near me, it would have changed your life too. He was an interesting cat and yeah, he was a bit of a drunk and yeah, he was a little racist. So is my uncle, <laughs> you know, like that's the family. That's who you have. Uh, but from that, I got these jewels and I included all warts and all, you know, uh, the sideshow can be a very ugly place. There's a reason there's not a lot of women there. It's a very ugly place. Um, hopefully the world gets better, but it wasn't great when I was there. Mm. If I were a woman, I wouldn't have been in those tents. Mm. It wasn't safe. And God bless the ones who could do it. Cause that's a hell of a glass ceiling to shatter for mm. no money. Like you're becoming a CEO. You're becoming the juggler. <laughs> Congrats, honey. You did it. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 easy to be passionate about this stuff because it's also, I mean, look at all these books behind me. They're all just you know, there's Stephen King here, and there's all this circus. Some of them are mine. I put up because we're doing it's a promotion, but also there's just books about and by, you know, about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's relationship with Houdini, uh, Josephine Baker and the Banana Dance and the, the Greats of Burlesque, that kind of stuff. That era interests me, and so to talk about it's very easy. So Ted, talk on the things you love. Yeah. Good. Does it feel like a burden to kind of carry that? Like, to, like, do you feel that inside? Like, I've got to do these guys proud. I've got to, you know, I've got to go out there and, and keep this alive. I've got to, you know, pay homage to their legacy. I don't think so. I mean, I want to do a good job, partly because I have paying customers. Mm -hmm. You know, when you buy a theater ticket, I still have that very blue collar mentality. I'm from poor people. Uh, I'm from the trailer parks. So there's very much a... 200 bucks is a lot of money. 100 bucks is a lot of money. 50 bucks is a lot of money for an hour and a half. And so I need to do a good job. So when you're going home, I've got your money. You've got a memory. That's a win-win. Um, you got a night out with your, with your husband, wife. You got dinner. You came and saw me. You go back home. You kiss the kids goodnight. Yeah, you had a nice evening. You're a little tipsy from the show. You had a good time. So I'm very cognizant of that, very blue collar on that. And I also always have giveaways at the end of the show. I got stickers and postcards, all the stuff I make. 
It's included in the ticket price because I want you to have what we in New Orleans called Lanyap. I want you to have a little something extra. I want to make sure that you go home with more than you expected. I have a bed of nails in the lobby. Not for me. I don't do bed of nails. It's not in my show. It's for you to lay on. And then your date takes a picture and there's your Instagram. Then you guys switch places. Take I got somebody there to help you get on and off the bed of nails, explain to you how it's supposed to work, et cetera. But you have an Instagram moment, so don't let you use your phone during the show. Mm. But I felt bad because you got uh, programs are a thing, but you don't, really, you don't hang them on your wall anymore like my grandmother did with Playbills from Broadway. Mm-hmm. Like I did with Playbills from Broadway. Yeah, that we still do. And so, but that Instagram is your thing. That's your record of you were the thing. So if I give you that moment about you, your ego, you're on the bed of nails, look how cool you are. And the person who's running the bed of nails for the operator says, you know, go ta-da, smile. You know, big cheesy ta-da, smile on the bed of nails. You post on Instagram. Good for you, good for me, but that's really for you. So then when you walk into the theater, there's a big sign that says, please turn off your cell phones. No video or photos during the show. You don't feel cheated. I gave you a thing. And then afterwards, even says on the thing, there'll be photo ops after the show. And I'm in the lobby. I shake every hand. I kiss every baby. <laughs> I, I'm there to say thank you for coming. Mm. I'm sweaty. My makeup's running down my face. My tie's barely. D- thank you for coming. I appreciate it. And part of it's it's nice that people tell you you did a good job. But it's uh, mostly I really am there to be like, no, no, thank you for coming. I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you. Oh, thanks, man. That's oh, very sweet. Thanks for coming to see it. I really appreciate you guys. Drive safe. That, that, that to me is very important. Some things should die. I'm not out here teaching looming. I'm not out here teaching how to weave kafti. I mean, like some, some <laughs> art forms die. I'm not doing opera. So I don't feel a burden of carrying this art form. If it has to go away, that's fine. Who cares? It's just entertainment. You've got a TikTok now. You'll be fine. Uh, read a book for God's sakes. Read a book. Color one at the very least. Um, but I've got something to say and I've got a medium in which to say it and I can show people a good time. And I feel the burden of that, but more as like a businessman and just as guilt. I don't want you to come to my show and have a bad time. That's a lose for everybody. In my opinion, hmm. like that's, that's also why my marketing has to be good. Yeah. You don't want to attract the wrong customer. <laughs> if you don't like this kind of shit. I don't want you sitting in the front row with a puss on your face, staring at me, mean mugging the whole time. Cause you thought it was going to be a magic show or because you thought it was going to be, Jim Rose, because you thought it was going to be blood and gore, and it's a lot of storytelling. It's only four tricks in 90 minutes. I need to make sure I put that in my marketing so the right person comes to the show, because if I went to a K-pop show, I don't care how good it is. I don't give a shit. I'm just going to be bored. It's not my thing. (laughs) So if they trick me into going there, they've wasted their time. They got my money, but that's you don't make the long dollar. I make your money the third, fourth, fifth time you come to see the show and you bring friends. Mm. And that, that's how you know you're doing it is when you see the same person. You don't remember them. You're in a different city. They go, I saw you last time you came here. This is my cousin. I knew he'd like this guy. He loves this kind of stuff. He loves Bill Nye. He likes who I hear. Bill Nye, Penn and Teller, Jim Rose. Um, he likes the history stuff. He likes science stuff. He built his own Tesla coil. That's my demo. So that, so that person paid twice to see the same show scripted. <laughs> Uh, any jokes they think are new or just jokes they forgot from the last time. <laughs> and they brought their cousin. And that's when you know you've got a hit is when you see people four, five, six times coming to see the show. It's insane. Mm. But I've been that guy. I've, I would see Book of Mormon every week if they, if I could afford it and they'd let me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had a blast seeing that. I'm a big musical fan as well. Uh, so I try and support like local theater and stuff like that. Occasionally, I'll, I'll get out to a big city one. Uh, I love it, man. It's one of my favorite art forms. But listening to you talk, 
I don't know. You know, I could be way out in left field, but I know everybody, virtually everybody I ever talked to, whether it's on this or in real life, um, when you really drill it down, everybody wants to be seen. You know, they want people to see them for who they are. And a lot of people try and do that through their art. So it sounds like you found a medium where you can bring people in, you can educate them, but also you can show them a piece of, like you said, your soul and you can show them who you are and maybe actually connect with another human, like, like in a, you know, just in a real way, like maybe have a moment with somebody. I mean, that's, that's freaking why I do this, this podcast is to, to connect with people. Do you, do you feel like that's a little bit of, of the essence of it there? There's a, there's a, a piece I do at the end of the show where I, I, every, every bit kind of has a point that's kind of obvious. And so at the very end, I've got a, a chair on stage and a pile of just broken glass, a Tesla coil, torches. It's just a madhouse behind me. It looks insane. I pull the folding chair that I used for jumping off onto the broken glass in front, sit down on it like I'm the cool gym teacher about to give you a sex talk or something. <laughs> you sit Sweaty, backwards on the chair? 90 minutes, almost, but like baseball cap backwards. Like, hey, kids. I know another fella who was a great freak and his name was Jesus. But like, okay, so I sit down like the youth pastor. And, and, and I say, the question I ask, this is literally the script. I say, do I have a point? Is there a point to any of this? And it gets a small laugh because along the way, I kind of been making points. So it's like, mm. do you not? Because <laughs> Jesus, we've been here for an hour and 25 minutes at this point. And I, and I say, I'll paraphrase. It's a longer mm. piece with jokes and callbacks. So the structure of it is, this is my, and I point all this crap behind me, all this behind me here no 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 that's that's for me not you this isn't a sales pitch i'm not now hoping that you are in love with the freak show i'm not this is my weird kink this is my weird fetish mm. this ain't for everybody this is mine i found it when i was 16 and it changed my life for mm. the better in every way it's a love letter all i want you to do now is not leave here saying oh my god i love the freak show too not what i'm trying to do I just want you to understand why someone like me would love something as dirty, as common, as low class, as fascinating, as historically interesting as the fucking freak show hmm. and why I've spent my entire life perfecting a very weird craft. Please, as you leave here, I'm begging you and I mean this, drive fast, take chances and try this at home. Right. <laughs> that's how close the show so so that idea of but that's truth i mean it's it's written in a scripted form and i've skipped like i said there's callbacks and jokes etc but it's kind of a wrap-up of like i'm not trying to get you to like fire eating but do you get why i love it do you get why writing matters to stephen king do you get why government matters to your favorite politician how they don't see it as a way to just scam you they really think they can change your life for the better the good ones if i pass a law that protects handicapped people from such and such, I've, I've bettered my society. I've become a lawyer to defend or to prosecute, to fight crime or to fight injustice. That it isn't just about making money that I actually believe in what I'm doing. And I think by reminding them of that at the end, and the sideshow is considered like professional wrestling. I make that, that case earlier. That's a lowbrow art form. It's not opera. It's more like the rodeo, the tractor pull, the professional wrestling. It's lowbrow entertainment. I'm okay with that. So it's a callback that it was, it's vulgar, it's low, it's dirty. And I fucking love it. Mm. And I don't have to. I could have learned all this about opera. I got a brain. I got a high IQ. I can read a book. 
I could have done all this about Mozart. I could have done an entire show about Beethoven or comic books or anything else, fighter jets, anything I fell in love with, I could have written 90 minutes of it and done a TED talk you'd have paid 40 bucks to see. The joke I make earlier is if I'd walked to that tent that day and it had been Jerry Seinfeld, you'd be at a very different show right now. Hmm. I was inspired by a fire eater. Jerry Seinfeld walked into a, a club and saw a guy doing comedy and thought I could do that. I walked into a tent and saw a guy eating fire. Here's the crazy thing. I don't know how much it cost to change my life. I didn't pay for the ticket. My dad did. <laughs> a quarter, 50 cents to change my life. Most of my family never left the trailer park. They never made it to college. Most of them never made it out of high school. I got two sisters never made it into high school. Hmm. I've traveled the world. I've got a degree. I've got a happy life because of fire eating. There's, I can point to a moment when the butterfly flapped its wings hmm. and my entire life changed. Most people can't. That's the same way I think if you had Joe Rogan or Jerry Seinfeld, was, with the first time they saw a comedian tell a joke and thought, oh, I got a joke, they'd probably feel the same way. Hmm. In fact, Dennis Miller remembers the moment. He talked about it on a podcast. He was at a show and the guy was awful, full audience. And he thought they hated him. They hated the guy. And he thought, well, I'm not any funnier, but at least I'm not a dick about it. And that gave him the courage to try. That guy was so bad, the bar set so low that Dennis Miller got into comedy. <laughs> I feel that. Like, yeah, I feel it. Like it's, and we should all be so lucky. It's heavy. Not that everybody has, has a moment that defines their life. Yeah. I did. I got lucky. And you telling that has a weight to it. It has a gravity that um, really shouldn't be there. But it, the way you say it, you say it with such conviction and such truth. It's like I... I feel that, man. Do people come up yeah, to you after a show? Nothing matters more to a painter than color. Nothing matters more to a sculptor than stone. Hmm. To an artist, the art is, and we sound pretentious if we talk about it. We talk about it to each other. Hmm. To me, the art of the fire eater is so deep, so sublime, so interesting that it is on par with opera, hmm. that it is on par with ballet. To me, I get why everyone else can't see that. I'm sure if you talk to The Rock, he'd say this about professional wrestling. Hmm. I don't see it. But he might. His whole family does that stuff. <laughs> so you talk to someone who's as passionate about comic books. You know, I'm not a comic book guy. But the stories are eternal. We see they're the most expensive, best movies in the world to make the most money. Because those storylines of Captain America was a kid who couldn't. And then they unlocked the potential. The, the Green Lantern is a chosen person like we all want to be. These are simple ideas. They get written for 40 years. So they have very interesting stories. But yeah, I think I think to an artist, you know, to a pianist, it isn't just about making pretty noises for your ears. I'm sure if you talk to them, there's something else that happens there for them. Why else would you do it? Why else would you dedicate your life to it? Hmm. Well, I've noticed. Talk to Howard Stern about radio. Sorry, yeah. I keep interrupting yeah. myself. No, no, no. Talk no, to no, Howard Stern no. about I... radio. He thinks radio is very important. Yeah, for sure. You know, absolutely. You know, and I've noticed through like the artistic stuff I do, um, what I crave more than anything else is for somebody to feel something i want them to see what i've done and i want them to feel the thing and i want to know that i was the one that was able to do that you know like I, i've thought a lot about legacy over time and, and you know i'm never going to be some rich guy like I, I grew up really poor as well you know kind of single mom situation and um i realized my name is never going to be on a building right people aren't gonna like read that there's never gonna be a plaque associated with me but i have learned that through people you can leave a legacy i mean it's definitely invisible and you i've noticed you do it through gentle nudges through little touches through moments like you seeing that fire eater it's just 
the opportunity for me to have a piece of art or something, some piece of me that can make somebody feel something and maybe move them slightly in a direction. And you know, what do they say? Like, um, I heard this, uh, this quote the other day, it's like about, about getting to the moon. They say, you know, on landing on the moon, if you're an inch off, no big deal on takeoff. If you're an inch off, you miss the moon by a million miles, you know? So it's like the idea that like these gentle nudges in certain directions, given enough time, enough velocity can really alter the trajectory of people's lives. And I think people forget so much about how just with their words with, I mean, you, I mean, you've gone like, you know, versus just saying something to somebody, you know, you've, you've gone so far to give a piece of yourself, um, to nudge people in a direction the way you are nudged. Like to me, that's commitment to a legacy. And I'm curious if you've ever thought of it in that respect. Like, have you ever thought about it like that? Not really. Cause I don't, I'm such a small time performer. I feel, I feel a hall of a hundred to 200 people. So you never feel that moment where you never have the Mark Twain award doesn't call. You know what I mean? You're ju I'm just a club comic basically. I'm and you never see the fruits of that labor shows. Nah. I mean, you do. I made a living for it at, off it until the pandemic for 20 something years. Hmm. Um, but I, I, I played with this idea. See, see what the, about this. I never could write a piece about this, but I had the idea. Man, we're about to get artsy fartsy as hell here. You ready? I love it. All art is merely exploitation of empathy. Humans are social creatures. All social creatures, dogs, monkeys, etc., can have some empathy. They can put themselves in the other person's shoes in a limited ability. And because it's so important to the survival of our species and the thriving of our species for any social species, it's rewarded greatly with dopamine. So every time I can display my ability to empathize, to understand, to see, I'll be rewarded with a dopamine hit or money or success or a date with that girl. If you know what to say to get her to say yes, you get a date with that girl or you <laughs> get whatever you want. It, it rewards in several, several layers of ways. So Rachmaninoff sits down and he plays the piano. And unless you have synesthesia, you don't see colors. You feel something. When the cannons go off during the 1812 overture, you feel that bum, ba -dum, ba -dum, but you feel that moment. Poems, haikus, blues, jazz, fire eating, podcasts. It's just a willing and positive exploitation of empathy. So if I can take an audience and allow them the gateway to walk a mile in my shoes, then that somehow, for some reason in the human animal, pays off in their brain. They don't have to care about me. And the idea I had was I'm an atheist. So what if I went to a Catholic church and did, what was her name from SNL? She did a show about leaving God. I'm blanking on her name, but if you look it up, she wrote a book about it. It was amazing. But it was her journey from very religious to atheist. She did a one woman show about it. Oh, I can see her face. Can't think of it. Anyway, as former <laughs> SNL cast member, that's what she did on Broadway. I wanted that show in a Catholic church and explain why I don't believe in God in such a way that they lean in, not back. That they walk a mile in my shoes, not trying to change their mind. It's not a sales pitch. I just want you to understand my thought process. And I'll bet I could do it because the human mind is so wired to want to see through my eyes. And that's why we so love paintings and art, everything that's everything is art. Uh, paintings and music and, and, and everything 
in the artistic world is because it allows you to exploit your natural empathy. Hmm. That's, that's it. That's all I ever got. I can never really put that into a piece. And it may be wrong, you know, but, but that idea that, that it's an exploitation of your empathy may explain why someone would want to hear about a trailer park trash kid from the rural South who found an escape hatch and there, but for the grace of God, go all, I see all my cousins in and out of prison on and off methamphetamine and not me. And why? Why am I different? They're as smart as I am, as clever as I am, same DNA for the most part. Why did they go that way and I went this way? You know, and and it's, to me, maybe not accurately, why well, I had the arts. And the arts call you to something, for better or worse, higher than yourself. You have to attempt something. You have to fail. And that gives me my hit. I don't know, maybe. Why would you care about that story? It's because you care about all stories. I watched the Jeffrey Dahmer story. I don't give a shit about Jeffrey Dahmer. He's a monster. And even his victims that you feel empathy for are not humans to me, they're characters on a screen. But my brain rewarded me for understanding what it was like to be both victim and monster. You know, it's interesting. I've noticed, um, like to that to that end, what you were talking about, how um, uh, I've seen, well, we, we talked about earlier being a teetotaler um, and you necessarily didn't have any specific reason. I have a very specific reason why I am. And it's like family history and how I was like, hmm, I'm never going to be that person, right? You know, it's like you, we all develop coping mechanisms is what I've learned. And so you can have two people grow up in the same house, be subjected to the same trauma. One becomes a junkie, one becomes a CEO, right? And it's, to me, it, a lot of it comes down to coping mechanisms. So you will always come up with something to cope. Sometimes it's something that society deems positive and useful. And sometimes it's not, and it's destructive to yourself. And it's funny you never know which direction somebody's going to go with or, or what they're going to latch on to. So you finding the arts, to me, that sounded like, was that like a safe place where you could go and, and kind of be lost and, and not be that person anymore? You could like the, I, so you were talking about ventriloquists earlier. I've talked to somebody before where they said that they can never talk in crowds. They can never express themselves. But when they put this puppet on their hand, they can live vicariously through there. And I've, I've heard like drag queens say, um, me, I'm, I'm shy. I'm terrified of the world. I've had so much trauma. When I put this makeup on, I put this wig on, I become this person that's indestructible. And, you know, I can, I could do anything when I'm, uh, behind, uh, behind whatever it is, whatever thing allows me to do that. Um, and I've heard, uh, RuPaul say, like RuPaul Charles, like one of my favorite humans out there, he said one day he realized that the power he had when he was in drag was available to him at all parts of his life. Like he just had this epiphany. Like I, I don't have to hide behind my art. I can, I can actually access that power. Do you think that's, was that, was that you? Is that why you became a theater kid? It might be because the nice thing about artists is we have entree into every level of society. I've performed at Lyric Opera House in three operas as an actor doing like jugglings where in Pagliacci I did juggling and fire eating. And another one I did like puppetry. I, I was a very That's big awesome. puppeteer. This is made by a puppeteer, Mark Dunworth right here behind me. Um, so I've been able to kind of, and I think when you grow up a redneck kid from the trailer park, there's a secret handshake that you just don't know. I don't fit into the yacht club, but if, but they'll let me in if I'm Groucho Marx. They'll let me in if I'm Robin Williams. They'll hmm. let me in if I'm me. And they don't expect me to be them. They like the fact that Larry the Cable Guy's here. Mm. They like the fact that Ron White is in the room. So 
the difference becomes the attractor. And then you can actually talk to them as a human because they wash that away for you. So maybe getting into the comedic side of the arts allowed me to align myself with an area of society, just the common middle class, really, that I wouldn't have felt welcome or invited to because so much of my family is not. And maybe that's the same way were I a Jewish kid or a black kid or a fat kid or a trans kid. Uh, there's a lot of that in the arts as well. So a lot of my theater buddies are there because they're the only gay person in Arkansas. And they were getting their ass kicked every day, but no one beat them up when they went and sang musicals. They were right. welcome there. It was a gay man's art. It was, you know, that's, that's who does musicals, right? So you go, well, where do kind of uh, fey kids or queer kids go? Well, to musical theater is the, the stereotype. But also, we don't beat you up. You know, it's someone like me going, what do you like, dudes? All right. Uh, I like fire eating. We're both kind of weird. You want to work on a thing or not? You want to juggle? What do you want? So it allowed me a safe space, but also gave me a way to, I can go to any trailer park and eat fire. I can go to any rich person's house and eat fire. And I have the power of holding them in thrall. And I think that's a that's a fun thing. I mean, I was on the stage at the Lyric Opera House eating fire, and it's in Pagliacci, and it's supposed to be a one-act opera about clowns. Pagliacci is Italian for clown. Pagliasso in, in Espanol. So it's the killer clown. It's the famous putting on the makeup and crying, clown, tears of a clown. All this comes from Pagliacci. Uh, the first million-selling album was Caruso's performance of the fam famous opera in the, uh, 19, in the 78 format back in the 1940s, I think. So... The curtain goes down and comes right back up because the directors wanted to do a little section there. And as it comes back up, I'm supposed to be practicing fire eating by myself on a bench. So empty stage, just me eating fire. And then it's a play within a play. So the, the village is going to come watch the show. I hear the village coming. Oh, and I freak out and run away to get to my place to perform in the commedia that's going to take place on the, on the stage within a stage, play within a play, classic of, of opera of Shakespeare. Um, and there's a moment where the curtain comes up and every night, you know, three, four performances a week in Chicago, it's the Lyric Opera House. You know, it's the bigs, baby. And I'm sitting there thinking like, as I, cause I don't need to think to eat fire. I could do it in my sleep. So I was 16. At this point I was in my forties. I ain't getting hmm. these fine. So instead what you do when you really know your dance routine is you, you appreciate the moment. I've got that baked in. There's a moment in freak show and tell scripted where I take a beat Sort of like you kind of take a moment, kind of, and then you start juggling as if it's hard. There's a bit moment where I really need to kind of catch my breath. And I apologize to the audience. And in that moment in my head, I actually take a moment and think like, this is going really good, man. This is great. This is my job. These guys are loving me. Or you're doing okay. You try and close stronger. You know, you, you assess. You really are in the moment for that moment. And Lyric Opera said the same thing. As that curtain came up and I lit the torch, as I'm eating fire for like 10 seconds, I'm just thinking like, you are, you are nothing. You are a piece of shit hillbilly from who gives a fuck trailer park in the South. You, your family has amounted to nothing for generations. You're trash. You're white trash. And through luck, through hook, through crook, through clever, through whatever, you are sitting in a room of millionaires in a multi-million dollar theater, in a multi-million dollar production, and in this moment, you're the only motherfucker that matters. Hmm. The orchestra is silent. The conductor's waiting on you for the cue to start the symphony. Every other aspect of life, I don't matter. But in that moment, I'm not the jester. I'm the fucking king. Hmm. 
And then I notice the audience coming, I run away. I'm a clown again. But for that brief moment, you feel like you're somebody. It's all any of us ever wanted. It, money doesn't do it for me. Mm. Power does, I'm not going to run for office. Being mayor doesn't do it for me. There's a little moment on stage in every show that I've, that I've written where I take a second to appreciate, but also to kind of bask in the fact that you did it. You, you want people to listen to you. They're all listening. They paid mm. to listen. You want to feel seen. You want to feel heard. You want to share your story. You want to show them someone. They don't run into you. You're the mechanic. You're the guy mowing the lawn. You're the guy in prison. You're the guy selling their kid meth. They don't run into you. This is their <laughs> chance to meet you on your terms. And you get to define it. And you get mm. to defy it as much as you want. You can be the redneck or you cannot. It's your choice. And so I can play the jester, but I can also play the fool. Two different parts of the same character. The jester was the only one who could tell the king when he was wrong. He had permission to mock him for being too fat. The king really needed to lose weight. You're going to die. And he could also just fart. In equal parts, the king kept them around. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I mean, also, maybe I just like attention. I don't know. Yeah, also, seven are. kids could also just be as simple as that. I just <laughs> wanted more attention than my mother had time to give me. Well, it sounds like it also, when you're on stage, you're in control of how you define yourself, of how people see you. You're telling people, this is how I am. This is how you see me. Like, you don't get to make this up. This is my story and I'm telling it to you. And this is how you're going to see me. I, I love the idea of that. When like I it, get to define at what point you do you control. learn? At, if I were homosexual, at what point do I tell you that? Right. So I've got this almost secret past hmm. that I can reveal in my own time. I don't need to tell you I'm from Louisiana. You're not going to pick it up. I'm not like, hey, y'all, how y'all doing? Y'all been good? Y'all been, how's your mom and him? I'm not that guy. I can chameleon, right? So I have no definable whatever so I can leak it to you. And I think being on stage gives me a chance to mention that part of my history, poke fun of that part of my history, but I get to control it. So I think, I think it is something I need to be ashamed about if I'm allowed. It's like, if you're the fat kid who's funny, you get to make the best fat joke and everyone else shuts up. You hear that with comedians. A lot of times I was the only Jewish kid. I was the only black kid. I was the only gay kid. I was the only fat kid. So if you make the gay joke first, you take the power from the bully especially if you're more clever than they are. It, it, mm. And this is, by the way, this is Serrano de Bergerac. This, this, is, this is the dark with the big nose. The, the Lord would love the little birdie so much he would give them this to perch upon. You know, and Roxanne with Steve Martin. Finally, a man who could please mm. two women at the same time. <laughs> Serrano takes the piss out of a bully in the scene and then kills him with a sword. It's Serrano. He also has sex with his cousin, Roxanne. It's a fun play. Um <laughs> But there's a moment where the guy goes, hey, big nose is Serrano de Bergerac. And this is the 1700s in that play. That's the best you got. Big nose. You could have said anything. You said big nose. And he destroys the guy in the movie with Steve Martin. He has him throw a dart. Whatever number you hit, I'll do that number better than you. The guy hits a 20. 20. All right, here we go. 20. And he does 20 better jokes than, hey, big nose. The guy takes a swing. He knocks him unconscious. In Serrano de Bergerac, he kills him with a sword. Um so it's a classic idea. So maybe the arts are just a way to kind of, the spoken arts at least, I don't know how I do mm. that with a guitar, um, to reveal if you were a coke addict, if you were molested, if you were anything in your past that you're some level or you just are missing an arm. You know, so anything you are ashamed of or scared to reveal to people, you get to define when it is revealed that this arm is fake. You know, when do I take it off and show you that I was injured in Afghanistan or whatever, you know? 
So maybe, maybe it is about control of that narrative because hmm. it's woven into every show I've done. So it must be, you know, it must be kind of rooted in that, that idea of like, there's a often a shame, but also coal miner's daughter. <laughs> it's like, I'm the first one to do it. She just passed away. Coal miner's daughter's a whole song about that shit. So I'm not hmm. the first one to do it. Right. Hmm. That's heavy. I like it. I like it. Sorry, man. is this podcast usually this existential? I apologize. I no. Um, and <laughs> it's, I know it's a good podcast when it gets to that place. This, okay, is the, good. this is this is what I'm looking for. This is always what I look for. I feel like this is a good place to uh, to pull the plug. And I don't know that I don't know that you could put a uh, a hat on the hat, or I don't know how many high, uh, how many cherries high we can stack on top of the Sunday, man. It's uh, that was. Um, Man, I was moved and I haven't even seen your goddamn show. So, <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Yeah, that's wild, man. Uh, let me shake it off. Let me wake up. Uh, right yeah. here at the end, um, I usually like to give you the opportunity of promoting anything that you have coming up, maybe any socials, any of that stuff. What uh, What do you uh, What do you want to – how do you want people to interact with you on the internet if you want them to um, find you? You could – so Freak Show Tell because the Google doesn't like the ampersand. So you'll find Instagram, all that kind of stuff at Freak Show Tell dot com or just search freak show tell i'll probably pop up uh currently i'm in retirement i might do some shows next year but covid really the, the pandemic killed my business and i pivoted into doing it professionally full-time so that is my job so this is this is a legacy of my bygone era um i did one show this year a couple of weeks ago and i might do three shows next year around october and then i don't i don't know this this may be a this may be a relic of a bygone time. So if you haven't seen it, you might not get to see it. I'll tell you if you see tickets on sale, if you want to see it. It used to be I would do 200 shows a year. Jeez. Now I'm doing two. <laughs> so maybe grab a ticket. I don't know. Uh, the good news is I don't care if you do. I don't make a living doing it anymore. <laughs> give a shit. I paid 500 bucks for the theater. I make more than that a week. What do I care if you come to see it? So I may not even push this hard. Maybe like I put it on Facebook and go, come or don't. Who cares? <laughs> I don't care. My rent's paid. My wife and I have a job. Um, whereas before it was like, please come. I need to pay my rent. Uh, so I would say at the very least, look, if you could take away anything from this, it's, it's that there's a lot of art out there. You have no idea exists. If you just dig, I'm not going to Kardashian my fat ass in your face. It ain't going to happen. They're not going to talk about me on the TikToks. I'm not going to trend. I'm not going to viral. You got to <laughs> find me. I'm hiding. You go see Aaron at Trickery. You go find a go find the Bindlestiff Family Circus in New York. You're in Austin. Let me think who's down there. Oh, there's a ton near Waco. Near, East mm -hmm. Texas has a ton of acts like that. You're in New Orleans. You look at the buskers on, on, on Jackson Square. Find Doug Kahn. Find Warpo. Find Jimmy Talks a lot. There are artists. If you're in a city and you can't find one, you reach out to me. That's what I can do for you. I'm a directory of all things unusual. Every friend I have is weird and they're all worth it. Hmm. Uh, so I, yeah, I would say if you take away anything like that, like go find a weird play, go find a tiny theater, go find an improv show. If you don't find one, Hey, guess what? A microphone costs maybe 50 bucks. Buy one at the pawn shop, start doing a show. You're going to suck. That's how you get better. <laughs> well, the easy formula for that is just find people like yourself that uh, make the show uh, really pop. Give it a little sizzle. Yeah, fine. And, and, and suck among friends. There's somewhere there's an open mic and it's a bunch of comedians and they're all struggling to figure it out. There's a bunch of improvisers struggling to figure it out. There's a juggling club near where you live. 
I know mm. there's a bunch all over the country because I traveled all over the country. That's what I'd do when I had a day off. I'd find the local juggling club or magic club if you're into magic. They exist and they're all over the place. You think my little tiny town doesn't have one? Google it. I bet you're wrong. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Well, I can't thank you enough for one for your time. Like I truly appreciate that. Um, your energy, absolutely killing it, man. <laughs> I, the only thing, the, the only bummer out of this is that, uh, I'm afraid I may not be able to actually catch your show at this point. Like I've done five trips to Chicago this year and they didn't line up with your one show, but maybe, uh, know, maybe right? next year if, uh, if things pick up, man, I would, Aaron I would and I do shows on occasion me. together. We do one called magic versus science where we do both do 45 minute versions of our show. Right. And, uh, it's a nice, like I said, I pair well with magicians because we don't compete. He's not trying to explain anything. I'm not trying to hide nothing. So it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice balance being a magician. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I dig it, man. Well, also, you're um, open and honest. And I can tell you've done a lot of introspection. And <laughs> yeah, too much. No, man. That's um, I told you earlier, I like an informed consumer, man. I like yeah. people who examine themselves, are willing to grow, willing to change, willing to... Uh, to find how they can be different. And you are by far one of the more different people I've met. So I appreciate it. Thanks. I appreciate, I appreciate your time, my brother. I really do. It's, it's it's a nice walk down memory lane for me. And I I will, as you can tell, I will talk about any art, the arts forever. It's endlessly fascinating to me. I love it, man. Let me hit stop on all this stuff real quick.